Dear Father, we have admired the gracious, patient, and long-suffering manner that you've dealt with your rebellious children in the Old Testament. Help us just now to see your goodness more clearly. Help us to ultimately believe to our core that you were just like Jesus. Amen. Last time we talked about Solomon, and remember there was a very brief, happy time. Everything was going fantastically well. And then, of course, Solomon, I mean, just went from the pinnacle of wisdom, and the kingdom was beautiful, and the nations around were marveling at uh, uh, Israel and the wisdom of Solomon. I mean, great things were happening. And then he fell after other gods began sacrificing his children to Moloch, and not surprisingly, everything fell apart. So just to kind of put things in perspective here, um, a lot has happened in just over a 300-year period of time. Um, So from the Exodus here in around 1290 to Solomon, 931, this is when the kingdom split, we've been through a lot of uh, material here. But, uh, you know, it's a lot to happen here in 300 years that we've been through and talking the last few Bible studies about Saul, David, and Solomon. And what I want to go through here just as a big picture is uh, what happened during this 200-year period of time. The kingdom split in 931. We'll talk about that rebellion, uh, civil war, and what actually happened. And so we have kings of Judah here, starting with Rehoboam, and then we have kings of Israel. And this was really Judah and Benjamin and then the other 10 tribes um, over here. And notice here, I put an asterisk here by the, the kings that were good, at least for part of their life here under Judah. And you can see there were a few. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, uh, Joash, Hezekiah. But notice here, as we go through the kings of Israel, not a one. Okay, they were all bad um, here for, for Israel. And we'll talk about that. And we'll go through the prophets that correspond. So today we'll go through Elijah and Elisha. Uh, Next time, we'll talk about Jonah and Amos. Then we'll talk about Hosea and Micah together. And then we'll spend um, probably at least a a couple weeks going through Isaiah. But it's important that we put these prophets in the context of when they gave their message. And the reason this ends here in 722 is this is when the Assyrians captured Israel. And so uh, the 10 tribes here to the north... Uh, were gone after this. We know nothing of them after 722 BC. So all that's left of Israel is really Judah and Benjamin after that. So Solomon's son who became king was Rehoboam. And we talked about the significance previously that Rehoboam's mother was an Ammonite and how important that would be here. The king of Israel was raised by a woman who was an Ammonite. And we know we talked in detail about uh, how the Ammonites worshipped their God. And that could have only had a very negative impact on what the king of Israel, uh, how he dealt with the people, how he treated people, and his perception of God. So this gives us some insight now into Solomon. But notice what happened. What caused the split in the kingdoms? The people came to Rehoboam when he was king and said, Your father Solomon treated us harshly and placed heavy burdens on us. That's not how Solomon started out. Remember how humble he was. Okay, but now he's treating people harshly, placing heavy burdens on them. If you make these burdens lighter and make life easier for us, we will be your loyal subjects. So he said, come back in three days and I will give you my answer. So they left. And he counseled with the older advisors and with the younger advisors. 
and finally sided with the younger advisors and made a, a foolish choice here. So they came back and he said, my father placed heavy burdens on you. I will make them even heavier. He beat you with whips. I'll flog you with bull whips. Okay, so it's not surprising that uh, some people weren't real enthusiastic here. Imagine uh, uh, here as we talk about the new presidential candidates that people were coming in. And this is their platform. You thought you had it bad? Boy, just wait. Okay, so people rebelled against that. And so we have the summary statement here. Ever since that time, the people of the northern kingdom of Israel have been in rebellion against the dynasty of David. And little statements like this also give us a clue about when a book like 1 Kings uh, might have been written. Prior to the captivity, obviously. Okay, so here is a description then of the splitting of the kingdoms. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he called together 180,000 of the best soldiers from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. He's going to fight. He's going to try to unite the kingdom. He intended to go to war and restore his control over the northern tribes of Israel. But notice, God told the prophet Shemaiah to give this message to Rehoboam and to all the people of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Do not attack your own relatives, the people of Israel. Go home, all of you. What has happened is my will. They all obeyed the Lord's command and went back home. Okay, so we might wonder why was this God's will, but I think it becomes pretty clear as we read through and discuss what actually happened, why this was God's will. He certainly didn't want them to fight, but even the splitting of the kingdoms, God used this in a way that was very positive. Uh, let's explain. First of all, remember I said all the kings of Israel were bad, and it started out with Jeroboam. Notice what he did. After thinking it over, he made two bull calves of gold and said to his people, you have been going long enough to Jerusalem to worship. People of Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Okay, just like uh, the golden calf, right? So the nation of Israel became completely idolatrous, all right? Starting with the first king, Jeroboam. Now contrast, Rehoboam, okay, we just said he's no saint. Look what he did, but... Notice the difference of what was going on in Judah. From all the territory of Israel, priests and Levites came south to Judah. They came to Judah. The Levites abandoned their pastures and other land and moved to Judah and Jerusalem because King Jeroboam of Israel and his successors would not let them serve as priests of the Lord. Jeroboam appointed priests of his own to serve at the pagan places of worship and to worship demons and the idols he made in the form of bull calves. From all the tribes of Israel... Notice, people who sincerely wanted to worship the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem so that they could offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. This strengthened the kingdom of Judah. And for three years, they supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, and lived as they had under the rule of King David and King Solomon. And so what happened here with the splitting of the kingdom was also a splitting of the people. Okay, And so the people who really believed in the true God in Israel actually came over to Judah. And so during these 200 years, there was a progressive divergence and split between these two nations. It's really interesting. Just as a little more evidence of that, we'll go through a few of the kings. Uh, King Asa, notice the description here. Many people <coughs> had come over to Asa's side from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon, these other tribes, and were living in his kingdom because they had seen that the Lord was with him. They made a covenant in which they agreed to worship the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. Anyone, young or old, male or female, who did not worship him was to be put to death. So this was really enforced. Uh, in a loud voice, they took an oath in the Lord's name that they would keep the covenant. 
And, and then they shouted and blew trumpets. All the people of Judah were happy because they had made this covenant with all their heart. They took delight in worshiping the Lord and he accepted them and gave them peace on every side. Okay, so there were some good things happening in Judah. King Jehoshaphat, very similar. The Lord blessed Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's early life and did not worship Baal. That's what was going on in Israel. He served his father's God, obeyed God's commands, and did not act the way the kings of Israel did. The Lord gave Jehoshaphat firm control over the kingdom of Judah, and all the people brought him gifts so that he became wealthy and highly honored. He took pride in serving the Lord and destroyed all the pagan places of worship and the symbols of the goddess Asherah and Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent out the following officials to teach in the cities of Judah. And this is interesting. They were accompanied by nine Levites and two priests. And there's a long list of all the people that went out on this campaign. And notice what they were doing. They took the book of the law of the Lord and went through all the towns of Judah, teaching it to the people. This is really a a massive uh, Bible study campaign. These people are going out and uh, going through uh, the books of Moses and previous books that were written and explaining them to the people. It really was a big uh, traveling Bible study. Sounds kind of interesting. And one more example of this positive splitting effect. King Hezekiah. Notice what he did. King Hezekiah, his officials, and the people of Jerusalem agreed to celebrate the Passover in the second month. And the king sent word to all the people of Israel and Judah. He took special care to send letters to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, okay, these tribes that had split off, inviting them to come to the temple in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in honor of the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and the people were pleased with their plan, so they invited all the Israelites from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south to come together to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover according to the law. I just, I like this, that God is reaching out to these people. Invitations, come back, come back. Messengers went out to the command of the king and the officials through all Judah and Israel with the following invitation. People of Israel, you have survived the Assyrian conquest of the land. Now return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he will return to you. Do not be like your ancestors and your Israelite relatives who are unfaithful to the Lord their God. As you can see, he punished them severely. And uh, we've talked about this so many times. How did he punish them severely? Uh, They separated from God. They brought the punishment on themselves, ultimately. God didn't have to intervene in any other way to punish them. But notice how this goes on. This is really interesting here. Do not be stubborn as they were, but obey the Lord. Come to the temple in Jerusalem, which the Lord your God has made holy forever, and worship him so that he will no longer be angry with you. If you return to the Lord, then those who have taken your relatives away as prisoners will take pity on them and let them come back home. The Lord your God is kind and merciful, and if you return to him, he will accept you. The messengers went to every city in the territory of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, and as far north as the tribe of Zebulun, but people laughed at them and made fun of them. Still, there were some from the tribes of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun who were willing to come back to Jerusalem. God was also at work in Judah and united the people in their determination to obey his will by following the commands of the king and his officials. So again, a lot was going on. There were a lot of efforts and activity, and more and more of the people were coming over to Judah during this 200-year period of time. And therefore, it's not surprising that at the end of the 200 years, God was completely disconnected from Israel altogether. And so he really couldn't do anything for them. And they went off to Assyrian captivity. When we talk about Hosea, that really is the book that describes God, his heart, as Israel is lost forever, those 10 northern tribes.
Now, here's an interesting point. If, based on what I just told you, who would we predict God's going to send a prophet to? Um, prophets go to the good people, right? He'd go to the people who are listening. But uh, just notice, coming back here to this um, table, the prophets here are lined up by which nation they went to. And Elijah and Elisha were prophets to Israel. Didn't send them to Judah, even though Judah was, at least intermittently, was responding to God. He sent them to the rebellious ten northern tribes. Here's something even more interesting. Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to who? Nineveh. Nineveh, the Assyrians, the enemy, the brutal Assyrians who would take Israel off to captivity. What's God doing sending prophets to these people? Shouldn't he be just keeping prophets here with the good tribe of Judah? It's really interesting. Amos, Hosea, prophets to rebellious Israel. I think God looks good in the sense that, um, man, he's obviously reaching out, pulling out all the stops to try to reach the people who aren't listening. And Micah and Isaiah uh, really had a message for both Judah and Israel. So God cares for his rebellious children. So let's talk a little bit about Elijah. And uh, then I want to introduce and, and discuss a little bit the idolatry and what really is idolatry. So we have this prophet named Elijah. And you remember he went in very boldly to King Ahab and said, In the name of the Lord, the living God of Israel, whom I serve, I tell you that there will be no dew or rain for the next two or three years until I say so. Okay, and it really happened. He walked out. Remember, they couldn't find him. And there really was a drought because we read on in the third year of the drought. Remember, there's trying to search where did that prophet Elijah go. And finally, we have an encounter here between wicked King Ahab and Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he said, so there you are, the worst troublemaker in Israel. I'm not the troublemaker, Elijah answered. You are, you and your father. You are disobeying the Lord's commands and worshiping the idols of Baal. Now order all the people of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. Bring along the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the goddess Asherah who are supported by Queen Jezebel. And isn't it kind of a sad uh, state here? We have 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah and God has one. Elijah went up to the people and said, How much longer will it take you to make up your minds? If the Lord is God, worship him. But if Baal is God, worship him. Kind of interesting. It sounds like they'd already made, it up, made up their minds, right? But here's a call, another decision. But the people didn't say a word. Then Elijah said, I am the only prophet of the Lord still left, but there are 450 prophets of Baal. So bring two bulls, let the prophets of Baal take one, kill it, cut it in pieces, and put it on the wood, but don't light the fire. I will do the same with the other bull. Then let the prophets of Baal pray to their God, and I will pray to the Lord, and the one who answers by sending fire, he is God. And the people shouted their approval. So they took the bull that was brought to them, prepared it, and prayed to Baal until noon. They shouted, Answer us, Baal, and kept dancing around the altar they had built. But no answer came. At noon, Elijah started making fun of them. Pray louder. He's a god. Maybe he's daydreaming or relieving himself. Or perhaps he's gone off on a trip. Or maybe he's sleeping and you've got to wake him up. So the prophets prayed louder and cut themselves with knives and daggers according to their ritual until blood flowed. They kept on ranting and raving until the middle of the afternoon, but no answer came, not a sound was heard. Now, what I want to, before we pick up the rest of the story, um, I want to talk about idolatry. And I think it's really significant here, according to their ritual, why were they cutting themselves? 
what's the purpose of uh, uh, this kind of a ritual in the worship of gods? And uh, I said previously, but didn't really back it up, that the essence of idolatry in religious practice is appeasement all the way through the Old Testament. And so I want to uh, build a little case uh, for that. But first, discuss another aspect of idolatry. Idolatry is anything that separates us or that we put in place of where God should be. So in Colossians, we read, put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. So there is an idolatry that's completely separated from worship of God, where we worship things that are of the world. So greed, money, we could make a long list here of anything potentially. Um, you know, obviously money uh, or a, an excessive concern for fashion. I mean, we could make a list of 300 things, right? Uh, uh, if you're thinking night and day about a sports team, for example, well, that's, that's kind of in the place of where your relationship with God should be. There's an idolatry of nationalism, um, which is uh, very prevalent, I think, consumed with, uh, with politics, our country. How's our country doing in the war? And uh, that's all we care about. So anything ultimately of the world that stands in place of God is an idol. And so if we read a verse like this in, in Isaiah, we think, oh, how foolish to worship a little piece of uh, figurine or whatever, but apply it to you know, some of the idols uh, that we have. I think it makes sense. Doesn't it occur to them to say, half of this tree I used for firewood, I baked bread, roasted meat, and enjoyed a good meal, and now I've used the rest to make an abdominal no-god? So this person is described as taking a piece of wood, half of it makes a fire, the other half makes it into an idol. And uh, God is here, I think, in a very humorous way, saying, doesn't it even occur to these people that you just carved that ridiculous little thing? How can that be your god? Here I am praying to a stick of wood, this lover of emptiness, of nothing, is so out of touch with reality, so far gone, that he can't even look at what he's doing. Can't even look at the no-god stick of wood in his hand and say, this is crazy. Okay, colorful uh, translation here I should have put in. Can you guess what version, uh, the message? Uh, so kind of, but anyway, that's, uh, this is the point here is, can't you realize that this is worthless? And ultimately, I mean, all of us crave relationship. We crave to be loved. And uh, so we reach out in many ways and after chasing after various things, not realizing, I think, many times that ultimately the only one that can satisfy that is God himself. And yet we try all of these other ways. And as it concludes here, this is crazy. But I think what's even more diabolical is idolatry that occurs in the context of even worshiping God and perhaps even calling God by the right name. So if you were just to ask these people who are worshiping Baal and you ask them, uh, who are you worshiping? Uh, what answer do you think they would give you? Would they say, well, we're worshiping this little statue. That's our God. Isn't the idol ultimately, that's a symbol that reflects the God behind it, right? No, they're worshiping God. Okay, they happen to call their God Baal, but that is God. So the idol, what you can touch, that's just a symbol 
behind God. And so ultimately, idolatry is worshiping a false picture of God. And there's more evidence for that here. But God, all the way through the Old Testament, describes idolatry as adultery, prostitution. And that is because God ultimately wants to have a relationship with his people, intimacy. He wants, as we described in Solomon, like a husband-wife relationship. And so when his children go off after other gods, it's described as adultery because they're now lusting after a relationship with something else rather than God. So this description in Jeremiah 3, Judah also saw that I divorced Israel and sent her away because she turned from me and had become a prostitute. But Judah, Israel's unfaithful sister, was not afraid. She too became a prostitute and was not at all ashamed. She defiled the land and she committed adultery by worshiping stones and trees. Under every green tree you have given your love to foreign gods. So there is a love relationship that the people had with these other gods. Okay, what ultimately is behind that? And it's fascinating here that when you read about the final church here, false church in Revelation 17, sometimes called the famous prostitute, that this church has, again, an idolatrous relationship, in this case with the beast, And notice how the the church is ordained. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and covered with gold ornaments, precious stones and pearls. And the jewelry is associated with idolatry all the way through the Old Testament. And it's not that God doesn't like jewels. Um, When you read the description in Ezekiel 28 of Lucifer, before the fall, he's adorned with all kinds of jewels. Okay, so God is, it's not that God has a distaste for uh, beautiful things. But what did the people do when they made the golden calf? They took off their jewelry and they melted it down and they made a golden calf. So the jewelry was used um, to make the idols. So that's why we associate um, idolatry with uh, jewelry so much in the Bible. Not to make a point at all about jewelry, but that's just some of the symbolism that's involved here. But this is ultimately, I think, what it gets down to. In Romans 1, this whole passage, Paul's describing uh, idolatry. And what he says here is very important. They exchange the truth about God for a lie, these people. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself. These two go in parallel. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They're worshiping a false picture of God and worshiping the things he created rather than the creator. And that is, I think, the essence of idolatry. It is we're worshiping a God that is nothing like the real God. That is idolatry. The idol is a symbol then that represents the God behind it. And as a little further evidence in 1 Kings 19, yet I will leave 7,000 people alive in Israel. Remember Elijah gone off and said, there's no one left. And God said, actually, that's not true. There are 7,000 left. All those who are loyal to me and have not bowed to Baal or kissed his idol. So again, they're bowing to this little idol. They're kissing this little idol, but there is a God behind it. Baal, in their mind. Of course, it doesn't exist, but they believe he does. So as I said, the essence of idolatry in the Old Testament is appeasement. And I think this is why our ears should go up if we're ever describing God or the plan of salvation in a way that makes it sound as if God is being appeased because that is always the the counter movement. We read about Ahaz, who followed the example of the kings of Israel. He even sacrificed his own son, as a burnt offering to idols, imitating the disgusting practice of the people whom the Lord had driven out. Child sacrifice, the 
every false god has to be appeased by blood. They're always angry gods that need sacrifice, in many cases child sacrifice, and then the god is happy. In Hosea 7, it's described this way. They are doomed. They have left me and rebelled against me. They will be destroyed. I wanted to save them, but their worship of me was false. Why was it false? They had a false, an entirely false picture of who God was. They've not prayed to me sincerely, but instead they throw themselves down and wail as the heathen do. Just like we read the prophets of Baal around uh, Mount Carmel, uh, wailing, gashing, cutting themselves uh, to appease the God. When they pray for grain and wine, they gash themselves like pagans, what rebels they are. And this is really sad here because God is describing his people who are by name worshiping him. But notice their worship of him is just as the pagans worship. Okay, their picture of God had become turned upside down entirely. I read this uh, previously, so I won't read it again, but in 2 Kings 3, remember we talked about the king of Moab. He's being defeated, so what does he do? He takes his own son and he sacrifices him on the wall. And when the Israelites see this, they're shocked. Wow, this act of appeasement, we better run for the hills. So they take off because the god of Moab surely is appeased, and so they better run. So again, it's always the mark of paganism. In Jeremiah 32, they've built altars to Baal in Hinnom Valley to sacrifice their sons and daughters to the god Moloch, who we talked about several times. I did not command them to do this, and it did not even enter my mind that they would do such a thing and make the people of Judah sin. Isn't that an interesting way of God to talk? It didn't enter my mind. Uh, you know, he's speaking a language here that we can understand. All right, so Paul would describe it this way. We know that an idol stands for something that does not really exist. We know that there is only one God. An idol stands for a picture of God, an understanding of God that is counter to the real God. So again, I would say that worship of a false picture of God is idolatry. Um, are there any elements of this in uh, Christianity today? Or since the cross and Christ, um, has all of this been cleared up and we have no elements of appeasement or of an angry God um, in our model? Well, um, I don't want to sound the least bit critical or condemnatory of others, but uh, I'll just bring up an interesting story. I have a friend uh, who grew up as a, as a Catholic, and I mean, really, Catholicism was Christianity, right, all the way through for well over a thousand years. And uh, but anyway, uh, he was fighting with his brother when he was little, and accidentally. Uh, a hook got caught in his brother's eye and he pulled it and I guess his brother had quite significant uh, bleeding and so was brought to the emergency room and so his mother brought him to the emergency room and from there raced to the church to pray to the Saint Lucy or Luci, which is just like Lucifer light. This is the, uh, the saint for eyesight or for light. And so going to pray to Saint Lucy why? Because, well, we need someone who's a little bit better than us who can talk with, with God. Okay, and so this idea that we can't come to God directly, but that we need someone else in between, a priest, someone else who can communicate with God for us, um, is that what Jesus came to reveal? Remember, he said very clearly, the time has come for me to tell you plainly about the Father. There's no need for me to plead with the Father for you, for the Father loves you himself. 
And so our understanding of who Jesus really was, I mean, he's God, right? The one who intercedes, the one who's our advocate, our substitute, the mediator, the one in between is none other than God. And so even our understanding of the cross, you know, if our understanding of the cross is, well, the father killed the son at the cross so that he doesn't have to kill me, uh, well, we can actually come away from the cross instead of realizing, my goodness, look at what God is like. He laid down his life. The creator let his own creatures torture him to death. I can't believe he forgave them as he's dying. Rather than being amazed at how good and gracious God is, we can actually come away from the cross afraid of God. And so, again, our understanding of the atonement very much ties into this. Hell, um, does God really torture people for all of eternity in sulfurous flames? I'd say there are lots and lots of issues that very much tie into our understanding of God, his relationship with us. Does he need to be appeased? These are all things that we need to, to work through. And one real good illustration of this, when Saul became Paul. Before Saul was called Paul, uh, what, did, what did he do? Did he read his Bible? Yes, he described himself as a very serious Bible student. Uh, did he keep the Sabbath? Yes. Did he go to church? Yes. Did he pay tithe? Yes. Did he keep the law? Yes. Every single thing that we might consider externally, that's a good list of things to do. But yet, what was he doing? He was going around killing Christians, right? He was right there when Stephen was killed. Uh, would we say that Saul had a, an idolatrous relationship at that time? Uh, yes, he, had a, he was keeping an external list but he did not know the real God. What happened when Saul became Paul? Remember, he was struck by light. And what were the words? He said, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And so what happened when Saul became Paul is really his understanding, his picture of who God was completely changed. His picture of God became the humble carpenter of Nazareth. And everything changed for Paul. He never, he still kept the same list, still kept the same day, still went to church, still read his Bible, but his understanding of who God was changed 180 degrees. Okay, and so that's the single most uh, important transformation that needs to occur. Now, idolatry makes God angry. I decided to leave out all the verses, but let me just tell you, it makes God angry. It's described. He's angry, he's angry, he's angry about idolatry. And we might ask why. Uh, by some understanding, it might mean, well, God is an egomaniac and he's, uh, he's got to have the praise and all of that. But listen to the description of why God is angry about idolatry. There's so many verses to support this. I'll put in three. They worshipped worthless idols. Notice what happened. And became worthless themselves. And they followed the customs of the surrounding nations, disobeying the Lord's command not to imitate them. This is a law that is now understood in psychiatry. It really is this way. They worship worthless idols and became worthless themselves. We become like the God we love, trust, and admire. It is a natural law that it works that way. This is repeated in two of the Psalms, 115 and 135. Those who make idols end up like them. So does everyone who trusts them. We very much do become like the kind of person we believe God to be. In Jeremiah 2, they worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. It just works that way. And read the whole passage here in Romans 1. I just clipped out a little bit of it. But Paul describes the same natural law relationship. They know God 
but they do not give him the honor that belongs to him, nor do they thank him. Instead, their thoughts have become complete nonsense, and their empty minds are filled with darkness. They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. And again, what happens to these people? Does God need to do something to them? It's in this passage where Paul says three times what God's anger is. He gives them up, gives them over, gives them over, gives them over to do the things that they want to do. He doesn't restrict their freedom. And what happens here is that their thoughts, their minds become complete nonsense in the process. Okay, this is just like Solomon. Remember we said Solomon for a while was wise. When he became foolish, again, his picture of God changed. He's now sacrificing his children to God and he became a fool. But in wisdom, and when we turn to God, there is this natural relationship that occurs on the other side. Yes, maybe you come to know his love. Remember, eternal life is to know God. That is a relationship. That is intimacy. That is based on a true knowledge of his character. Although it can never be fully known, but notice what happens in that process. And so be completely filled with the very nature, the very character of God. It works on the other end as well. In 2 Corinthians 3, and all of us have had that veil removed so that we can be mirrors that brightly reflect the glory, not a brightness, but the character of our Lord. And as the Spirit of the Lord works within us, we become more and more like him and reflect his glory, his character even more. So as we are having our eyes fixated on the real God, it's a natural law that we become more and more like him. So that's why it makes God angry because uh, just like a doctor, you see your patient refusing to take their medication, they get sicker and sicker and you want to help them, but what can you do? Um, dentists don't need to sneak into patients' homes and put cavities in their teeth if they don't brush their teeth. It's a natural law. It just happens that way. Okay, so we come back here to Mount Carmel. We've talked about idolatry, and the rest of this story is really interesting. I won't read through it, but you remember what happened, right? The fire came down. They're all down on their knees. And um, here's what I find very depressing. The fire is... Uh, you know, God, you'd expect a big revival, wouldn't you? You expect a big movement. You expect everyone now to worship the true God. Nothing else after this. I mean, there is no movement at all. In fact, Elijah rushes off and is chased by Jezebel. And I think in his great depression and discouragement, I mean, no one was one to the true God. It didn't work. I mean, couldn't we imagine that if there were a great fireball that came down in Loma Linda, that we would really... I don't know, we'd be more zealous or something for God, but it just didn't work. And finally, he said, it's too much, Lord. Take away my life. I might as well be dead. And so, remember, he ran off to Mount Sinai. <clears throat> he got up, ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to walk 40 days to Sinai, the holy mountain. There he went into a cave to spend the night. Suddenly, the Lord spoke to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He answered, Lord God Almighty, I have always served you, you alone. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed all your prophets. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. Go out and stand before me on top of the mountain, the Lord said to him. And then the Lord passed by and sent a furious wind that split the hills and shattered the rocks. But notice, the Lord was not in the wind. The wind stopped blowing, and then there was an earthquake. But again, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but again, the Lord was not in the fire. 
And now this is significant. After the fire, there was a soft whisper of a voice. When Elijah heard it, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And what I think God is doing here is the Old Testament methods, the things that we see so much, the things that trouble us so frequently in the Old Testament, what are they? Wind, earthquake, fire, flood. Um, God using these desperate measures, just like he did here at, uh, at Mount Carmel with sending fire down, consuming the altar. I think God is saying, you know, um, I, uh, I don't mind using these methods, but I wish that you people would listen to the soft, still voice. I really don't like to speak this way. And isn't God easily misunderstood because he uses wind, earthquake, fire, flood, and these things on occasion to get our attention. But that is not the ideal. And I think that's what God's saying. These things are not the way I want to communicate. We talked a couple weeks ago about this kind of darkness light illustration. And I would say dim light revelation of God is that he's powerful. I mean, do any of us disagree and would make a case that God is not powerful? Everyone agrees that God's powerful. That's not in dispute. But that's not what God ultimately wants to reveal. So dim light revelations here. Yes, he shook Mount Sinai. David killed Goliath. The walls of Jericho fell. He sent fire to consume the altar in this case. Um, yeah, God is powerful. Okay, but the ultimate thing about God and the thing that is so radically different about Christianity is our God spent nine months in a womb. He spent his first night in a manger. He died on a cross. Our God is humble. It's not just that he's powerful. That's the thing that uh, we should be talking about is that the all-powerful one is just as kind and gracious as Jesus. And so the bright light then is that our God does not need to be appeased. He would actually like to talk with us in this still small voice of truth. So how does God desire to interact with his children? Um, I like these passages here, Isaiah 118. Come now, let us reason together. Let's talk it through. I want you to understand. And not by strength, not by power, but by my spirit, says the sovereign Lord. Wind, earthquake, fire, those are not ideal means. Um, my spirit. And interesting here, what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Uh, this is often interpreted in the, you know, very lots of power and we're with, filled with lots of uh, out of control emotions and so on. And yes, it's a wonderful experience. But notice, what does the spirit produce? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility. And I underline self-control here because to be filled with the Spirit, if you're worshiping Baal, would appear to be out of control, cutting yourself, flailing all over the place. To be filled with the Spirit, ultimately, is to be like Jesus Christ, in control, patient, kind, good, loving, at peace. Um, that's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. And what were Jesus' methods? Were they wind, earthquake, and fire? I mean, the pinnacle revelation of who God is is Jesus Christ. He used the still, small voice. Blessed are the meek. Happy are those who are humble. Take my yoke and put it on you and learn from me because I, though I'm God, am humble, gentle in spirit, and you will find rest. That's the still, small voice. And God would much rather communicate with us on that level. But if we're so hard of hearing, he'll use the wind, earthquake, and fire uh, to reach us. And he has many times. Well, if I could just conclude a little bit here with Elisha. And, you know, this is the thing about the Bible. Here we have this wonderful section about the still small voice 
and God is just like Jesus, and it's, uh, maybe we get a little bit excited. And then we have a story like this that we have to explain. So Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him, and he said to them, and said to them, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Apparently Elisha didn't have much hair. And, uh, but he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Okay, great. Still a small voice of truth, and now we have bears chasing kids around uh, in the woods. So, um, okay, but that's the Old Testament, right? But the question is, why would God need to send bears out of the woods here to chase some kids? And uh, female bears, yes, she bears. Um, well, when you read what the king of Israel was doing at this time, and you have to go back to 2 Kings 1, he fell off his balcony, and what did he do? He consulted with Beelzebub. Okay, so the king of Israel, I mean, it's supposed to be the person that represents God, is supposed to be the spiritual leader uh, of sorts. He's worshiping Beelzebub, and so uh, Elijah, he was just translated, right? Chariots of fire, and did these youths know about it? Yes, they did, because what are they saying to Elisha? Hey, you go up too, Baldy, you go up too. You join Elijah. And so, I mean, what does God do? I mean, he just brought Elijah up in chariots of fire, and these youths are so unimpressed that they're mocking his successor, making fun of him. And so we have some she-bears that come out, and you'll notice that uh, Elisha was really respected for the rest of his uh, ministry, probably uh, because of this story. So um, anyway, maybe God should send some she-bears and peek their heads in the window once in a while to get some respect. But what's really interesting about Elisha, you know, the miracles in the Bible are concentrated during the life of Jesus and during this time. Um, look at all the miracles, spectacular the miracles that Elisha did. So he parted the River Jordan. He purified water with salt. He called rain down to water thirsty animals and men. And you remember the oil that continuously poured out of the jar. He raised a boy to life after he had a headache. Okay, we won't go into the neurology of that, but it's kind of an interesting story there. Um, he cures poison in the stew with some flour. He fed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. Jesus wasn't the only one to do that. Remember, Naaman was cured of epilepsy. We have floating axe heads. And then we have a Syrian army struck blind. I mean, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And here's the point of all this. Oh, actually, the last miracle, and this is the funniest one, the miracle of Elisha, which occurred after he died. He was buried, and every year bands of Moabites used to invade the land of Israel. One time during a funeral, one of those bands was seen, and the people threw the corpse into Elisha's tomb and ran off. As soon as the body came into contact with Elisha's bones, the man came back to life and stood up. Have you heard that story? Um, I just imagine you're in a funeral procession and you turn around and you see the Moabites after you, so you ditch the body in Elisha's tomb and you turn around to see if the Moabites are catching up with you and you see the dead person running after you as well. You know, uh, That would be really shocking. But um, here's the point with miracles is uh, I had always had the assumption that lots of faith, we'd have lots of miracles. If only I had more faith, then we'd have lots of miracles. But yet the life of Elisha reveals a time of no faith and lots and lots of miracles. So what's God doing? What he's always trying to do with wind, earthquake, and fire, get a little attention, right? And this story would be told. Maybe we should go back and learn a little bit about what Elisha uh, was teaching. So more trust, more miracles? Uh, no, not usually. 
An example, Paul, was he a man of great faith? Yeah, wouldn't we say Paul's a man of great faith? Did you know he had a physical ailment? And he talked about it. But to keep me from being puffed up with pride because of the many wonderful things I saw, I was given a painful physical ailment which acts as Satan's messenger to beat me and keep me from being proud. Three times I prayed to the Lord about this. Again, man of great faith, prayed to God about this and asked him to take it away. But his answer was, my grace is all you need for my power is greatest when you are weak. I'm most happy then to be proud of my weaknesses in order to feel the protection of Christ's power over me. And so miracles here, um, maybe I just skipped through this very quickly, but miracles never seem to work in a very dramatic way for God. Through the, the wilderness wandering, just before the 40 years, God said very sadly, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust me? Even though I've done so many miracles. And Jesus was raising Lazarus and remember they left the tomb and plotted to kill Jesus never mind the miracle so miracles are actually very dangerous in a sense that they can be counterfeited and uh, so again I think the ideal is always the still small voice that's the level that God wants to reach each one of us all right let's pray dear father we admire so much that you've used wind earthquake and fire um, but Really, we'd like to respond to you as a friend. We'd like to respond to the still, soft voice. We'd like to have a relationship with you. Please help us to enter into that friendship with you. Change us, change us into reflectors of your goodness and your character. Amen.